Hi, everybody. How you doing? I'm Tom Hall. I'm the music director of the Baltimore Choral Arts Society and the culture editor at WYPR Radio. I uh, do culture uh, and uh, various other segments on Maryland Morning with Sheila Cast at 9 o'clock Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. How many of you listen regularly? Wouldn't miss it. There you go. You're all lying. I appreciate that. And um, I also host a show called Choral Arts Classics. And uh, one of the best parts of my job is that I get to read some terrific books and talk to the people who wrote them. Uh, and that's what we're uh, able to do this afternoon. The book that we're going to talk about is called Lord of Misrule, and it's by our guest to my left, Jamie Gordon, who uh, was born and raised here in Baltimore, uh, is now on the faculty of Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, has served on that faculty for 30 years. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, is, for this book, the winner of the National Book Award. Wild applause. <laughs> Jamie also won the, and this was just uh, this last Wednesday, uh, she won the Dr. Tony Ryan Book Award, which is given for books, uh, best books about uh, horse racing and the horse business. She went to Lexington, Kentucky and picked up that award, so congratulations for that. And we'll see. Maybe by the end of this afternoon, we'll gin up another award to give you. This is good. But Jamie Gordon, welcome to uh, back home. Good to see you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I see many old friends here and family. And um, I love being back in Baltimore. And thank you so much for coming out in this dreadful weather. I'm sure it couldn't have been fun. And we do want to also thank uh, Greg Wilhelm and the folks at the City Lit Project for another terrific City Lit Festival. They've done a great job. We also want to thank Dr. Hayden, Judy Cooper, Roswell and Cena, the gang here at the Pratt Library for hosting this and being, as always, just gracious hosts and terrific partners for this. So thanks to everybody at the Pratt. How many of you have had the pleasure of reading The Lord of Misrule? Yeah. The rest of you are in for a huge, huge treat. This is Jamie A., and I told you this on the radio. I'm going to tell it to you again here. This is a terrific, wonderful book. Um, tell us a little bit about the plot for those of us who haven't had a chance to read it. It takes place at Indian Mound Downs, which is a racetrack in West Virginia. Tell us a little bit about that place and some of the people who are involved. Let me see if I can do this by heart. The first time anybody ever asked me that question on the radio, what's this book about? I just sat there for a while. Like, what is that book about? It's a good question. Uh, it's about four um, desperate people um, in one of the only decent lines of marketing uh, prose I ever wrote. I called them scar scarred romantics in the American grain, um, who are trying to figure out the world from a rundown racetrack in the, east, in the uh, northern panhandle of West Virginia on the banks of the Ohio River. Um, they are closest to home. A young woman, uh, not that I'm young anymore, but I once was, I once was. Um, a 25-year-old uh, woman named Maggie, a kind of a drifter, green on the racetrack. How did she get there in the first place? Um, she fell in love with a charismatic, handsome, gifted, but definitely unstable horse trainer named Tommy Hansel. 
Um, <coughs> excuse me. It turns out that uh, Maggie has an uncle, a great uncle, um, who's a racetrack person. She's kind of known this for years, but since he comes from the not respectable side of her family, um, she doesn't have much information about him. She only knows that her uncle, Rudy Samuels, is somewhere around there, and he's something like a touter or a bookmaker or a God knows what. Um, it turns out that he's a, a loan shark, um, uh, a racetrack financier, he calls himself. Uh, by the standard, standards of his profession, a gentleman uh, follows his own code of ethics, but definitely uses his muscle to influence events on the racetrack, even though he personally has been ruled off of the racetrack. He's not allowed to, to show up there in person, in other words, because of um, certain um, legal difficulties that he's been in in his life and un unsavory associations. Um, and he's the one who, um, who designs the race, asks for the race to be written towards the end of the that particular racing season for um, a legendary but very damaged stakes horse named Lord of Misrule. That's where the novel gets its name. Um, the fourth person of importance in the book is, um, is an African-American groom um, who knows everything about the racetrack. Um, he's been on the track since he was eight, so he doesn't have very much in the way of letters, although he can sure figure numbers as well as anybody. And um, very much against his better judgment, he ends up working for Tommy Hansel and Maggie. Um, race, horse racing being what it is, one day he's working for somebody, the next day he's working for them, kind of against his will. Um, so they are the, the four of them are the quartet that um, in some way um, configure the whole novel. I think that's enough for you to know that everything is headed for that big race with Lord of Misrule, but there are many races and horses and people along the way. Let me ask you one more horse racing question because as a person who knew nothing about horse racing when I read the book, uh, it took me a while to sort of figure out this concept, but it's central to the book, and that is Tommy and Maggie come down to West Virginia, to Indian Mound Downs, to uh, enter their horse or horses in claiming races. So explain how a claiming race works. Okay, um, even though um, just as with um, um, s uh, I can't think of an analogous situation at this moment, there are certain things that you never learn until you actually start betting on them, you know what I mean, working with them. So you'll forget in two minutes. But anyway, uh, the, the deal with the claiming race is, uh, and it's usually um, a way to um, organize things for the cheaper horses on the racetrack, um, which is most of the horses on the kinds of racetracks that I was working on. So most of the races were claiming races. Um, the idea is that every horse in that race is for sale to everybody else who has run a horse in that meeting. Um, and um, therefore, um, the horses should be approximately of the same quality. But of course, this is immediately an opportunity to, um, to at least gamble or play. That is, if you can conceal the fact that you have a $5,000 horse and make him look like a $3,000 horse on paper, then he's going to have an extra good chance of winning that race. And even though the purse might be um, hardly enough to, uh, 
to manipulate anything for, you can cash a bet. Um, and that's often done by horse people. Other ways that claiming races are manipulated, if you have a horse who's going bad and you uh, want to get rid of him, but he still looks good on paper, you can, the opposite uh, kind of um, game can be played. You can be trying to draw a claim. Somebody is going to take your horse, and even if that horse breaks down that day on the track, it's, his, it's the, the new owner's horse at the end of the race anyway. And um, knowing a little bit about claiming. I mean, there is a, an epigraph at the front of the book that, that explains this very succinctly, but um, I know lots of people have to go back and look at that again to understand it. But uh, since, uh, I mean, it amazed me that um, I had looked at maybe 100 works of um, fiction or nonfiction about um, horse racing, none of which ex- explained claiming, which is a basic thing uh, that I needed to understand in order to work on the racetrack in my day. Um, and it's still the case. So, so you have to learn about, you, you'll, but you will if you read the novel. You'll understand it. And you mentioned that you worked on a racetrack for a little while, and then you did a bunch of other research uh, in preparation for the novel. Talk, us, uh, talk to us first about your experience. Uh, how old were you? What kinds of things were you doing? And do you uh, have direct, is there a direct lineage from some of the people that you met and knew in those days uh, here in the characters in this book? Um, okay, well, you might have to remind me of parts of that question a little later. But uh, let's see. <laughs> It's tax weekend. I try to be confusing it. It's not confusing. It's just many segments. 1967 to 1970 were the years that I worked on the track. And um, how did that happen? Um, when I first... Uh, I, I wasn't long out of college when I came back to Baltimore City. But I didn't want to live in the city. I wanted to live in that beautiful countryside about 50 miles outside of the city, which was really country, at least then. Um, around Frederick, Harbors Ferry, Winchester, Virginia, Charlestown, West Virginia, uh, Hagerstown, someplace in there, where uh, those beautiful bluish limestone outcroppings um, make a kind of uh, um, rugged profile of foothills. I just love that country so much. I wanted to live there, but I had no idea how I would make a living. So I moved there first, and I got a job working for the Frederick News Post, I had no journalism experience. They hired me to be the Food Recreation Society and um, Education Editor overnight. So that will give you some idea of the kind of paper we're talking about here. Um, but the, the part of the job I really loved was writing food copy. I mean, I just uh, I, I would have thought I'd be the last person who'd like working for the women's pages, but... I loved it. I love writing recipes. I love reading them, especially if I don't have to cook it, you know. And um, uh, I loved working with this canned food copy from the American Pickle Packers Association of America and the pork growers and the this and that, um, and rewriting headlines. And um, I would have been very happy to stay at that job, living in this um, countryside that I loved better than any. But I ran into a... Um, a glamorous young horse trainer who knew how to recruit young women to work for him for nothing or very cheap. And um, pretty soon I was doing that and writing um, food copy for the papers. But then we shipped out. Uh, the, 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 
tracks that I was first introduced to racing on were Charlestown and Shenandoah Downs. Shenandoah Downs doesn't exist anymore. And uh, Charlestown is there, but it's a way different kind of track now than it was then. It was then a run-down, half-mile bullring um, of a racetrack, but it had the advantage that um, it was the first stopping place for a lot of horses being shed from, um, from more expensive strings of horses at the, at the races, what even horse racing people would call the races, meaning Aqueduct, Belmont, Liberty Bell, Pimlico, Laurel, I mean, tracks that had a higher class of horses. Um, and since that was the first stop on the way down, a lot of them were... Um, classy old horses um, who still had plenty of run left in them one way or another. And uh, a $1,500 horse at Charlestown was a lot better than a $1,500 horse at Wheeling Downs or um, Waterford Park, another cheap track of the day, or Pocono Downs. And that was the basis for shipping those horses out to these other tracks and trying to gamble with them, which is the basic thing that Tommy Hansel is trying to do in this book. Um, not something that's thought of as a, um, as a, as a huge um, scam, by the way. It's just horse racing. I mean, it's just what people did in those days. Um, so I never meant for people to um, think that this is anything more than to use uh, Cheswav Miłosz's um, um, expression about the United States in general, moderately corrupt. Not, uh, not excessively, not extremely corrupt, just moderately corrupt. And, um, Although, at, at one point, one of the characters describes Indian Mound Downs as the lying capital of the world, which is to say that, you know, each person has his or her own deal, and, and they're, they're trying to make sure that they're sort of keeping their bases covered. I, I always felt that was one of the um, aspects... Um, paradoxically, it keeps the, the racetrack honest since everyone is doing it and nobody is telling anybody else the whole story. Um, I mean, you just take it... Uh, I mean, every now and then a blacksmith will tell you that, um, um, that he knows how a race that's going to happen um, 350 miles away from where he's talking to you right then, that afternoon is going to come out. I mean, I remember one time getting in the car and driving at a speed that I don't even want to tell you to uh, play a horse in Rhode Island that, um, that afternoon. I mean, he, th- he figured he was safe in mentioning it at 6 o'clock in the morning, but no. <laughs> and we made it just in time to play that race and made a lot of money, doubled our money. No, it was actually... But, um, but that's just, uh, as I say, um, I mean, the lying capital of the world is a compliment, in a sense, to, from, from the point of view of, of uh, racetrack people. There's a character, by the way, of importance in the book named um, Ducey Gifford, what's called a, a gyp on the racetrack, or was in those days, short for gypsy, having nothing to do with ethnic background. It just means a, an itinerant trainer, probably with just one horse, um, and a very marginal operation, often would just sleep in the stall with the horse. And... Um, um, 
forget even why I started to explain that. Well, never mind. That, um, well, is it significant, for example, the, the, the book is divided into four races. Each, oh, race, right. each race is uh, named after a horse. Thank you. What, what it was about, that's right, why doesn't Ducey have a point of view? Because in the lying capital of the world, she's a failure. You, she can't lie. You, all you have to do is look at her face and you can figure out what she's planning to do. And that's why she didn't need a private point of view in the book. Because uh, wait 35 seconds and she will tell you everything that's on her mind. Um, that's why she remains, although she knows a lot about horses, she can't be, ever be a big success at the racetrack. Well, we talked about this a little bit on the radio the other day. Um, there is a, at least a little bit of Jamie in the main character, Maggie. Um, she's fiery. She's in this just white-hot sexual relationship with this young guy. She's very smart. That's, that's you, Jamie. Jamie, <laughs> I don't know about now. He, he holds that microphone over here. Now I've got to say more. What have I done? Now I'm interested. Now you got me intrigued. Well, she's interesting to me, too. No, historically, historically at least. But you know, it's actually an interesting fact that occurred to me. I could not write anything autobiographical until I got to be about 35 years old. All of a sudden, I began to see the person that I was in my um, 20s um, as a character in a book. I mean, I, I began seeing her as a character, and that meant a character in fiction. I began seeing her as a lot simpler, in other words, and a lot um, more purely those certain traits of mine from those days that, um, that, that w- could um, animate a work of fiction in some sense. Um, it was also all Maggie's fault that I almost didn't publish this book because I was sick and tired of that character by the time I wrote Lit- Lord of Misrule. And when it didn't sell right away, I blamed it on her. That, you know, you just haven't really panned out for me, Maggie. And it... Um, uh, I, here I thought that would be interesting to people, a kind of reckless, wild, uh, adventurous, uh, a, a young woman who wants to put herself in peril, including sexual peril. Um, but, it, uh, but somehow um, that attracted words from um, some nasty reviewers like unsavory and so forth. I, I mean, it used to uh, eventually be embarrassing to me. And... Um, when, uh, when this book didn't sell right away um, about six or seven years ago, um, I just couldn't bring myself to go back and read it. I just didn't want to look at Maggie anymore. Um, but when I finally did go back and start working on the book again, she wasn't as dominant in the, in the story as I had feared. And anyway, now people like her better. I don't know why. I don't know. Why has that changed? Well, she's fascinating. And, I mean, you know, there are some direct parallels. I mean, she's working at a track. She had this great love affair. She was a recipe writer for a small newspaper. I mean, there are, there are a few things, more than one clue here, you know. I mean, so th- this is how I pick this up. It's not like I have some great powers of deduction. Or I'm not pretending that there's not an element of self-allergy in my being sick and tired of her. That was, that was definitely three-quarters of it right there. But... But it is an earlier avatar, you know. I don't. I don't. But the, the provenance of this book goes back fairly a fairly long time because this started as a short story, uh, or at least some of the characters appeared first in a short story and then later in this in this novel. Give us the progression of how you uh, came to write this book. Okay, um, when I finally uh, got around, I mean, I was always planning from the minute I left the racetrack to write um, 
a book about it. Um, and I first got down to doing that 25 years later. That's typical of me. I'm still working with material from my 20s, one way or another. It's embarrassing to say so. Um, so in uh, 1995, I wrote this story, um, A Night's Work, um, just to see if I could get that raffish atmosphere and the, the kinds of personalities um, back that um, I th- thought I would need to do a longer work. I've written about three short stories in my entire adult life. I just don't write short stories, but that one was a sketch for something longer. And um, I was very lucky because... Uh, the editor of Best American Short Stories that year was Jane Smiley, um, who, who said in her introduction to that particular edition of Best American Short Stories, um, she loved this story because of its structure, and she loved this one because of, of the intellectual way that character was developed. And then there was A Night's Work, a race drag story, and that was about it for, for A Night's Work. <laughs> She was just a sucker for any group of characters that belonged on a racetrack backside. Um, so, but nevertheless, I felt that I'd had good luck with this story, and um, of course, being in some ways um, a, a not not so much a lazy writer as uh, uh, so, so slow that any way that I can escape having to write thirty pages of a of what's going to be a novel. Um, it looks like a good escape route for me. So I tried to write the novel around that story, but it didn't work. I just couldn't do it. And besides, I discovered a logical discrepancy. There are two characters um, in both of them, one of whom dies, but it's the other one in each of the two pieces. So they couldn't possibly happen in the same universe unless, it, unless the dead walk and are just as just as uh, conversational the next day after they've died as anybody else. So, uh, um, so one way or another, I, I ended up not being able to use that sto- story, but I kept aiming to use it. And uh, the characters are a blacksmith, kid stuff, very um, cute, um, from Louisiana, uh, charming, um, probably part Choctaw Indian, Um, part African-American, part, I mean, just Creole uh, in in the uh, best sense of that word, Um, and a terrible drunk. Um, I mean, it was kind of proverbial on the track that blacksmiths drank too much, at least in my day. And um, Tutai, the the racetrack financier, the the loan shark, first got developed there. As a matter of fact... um, Lunch, I, Tutai um, has, in a way, a link to, um, uh, to something that happened in my own family, but, um, but I had totally forgotten about it or repressed it. Well, I had written that story, and it was um, in print before it suddenly hit me. Oh, my God. I, you know, I'm, I have an uncle uh, who was a loan shark and uh, was murdered eventually. And I didn't know exact, I didn't know the particulars of his uh, nether fate. But um, it must have deeply disturbed me, enough so that I think I had to explain that to myself. Either that or his, uh, his ghost channeled me. Because I think he comes out a character who's fairly likable, and yet I don't try in any way to exonerate him from his, his uh, vocation. 
the characters in this book are wonderful. And, and with the exception of the bad guy who was tough to really like, I thought all the other ones were incredibly likable and, and honest and raw and flawed and beautiful. Um, and, and even the names are cool. I mean, you've mentioned some Ducey and kid stuff and two-tie. Two-tie wears two bow ties every day. That's his sort of, you know, riff. Um, Tell us about one in particular, Medicine Ed, and maybe you could read uh, a passage that describes Medicine Ed. You alluded to him uh, earlier. Give us the background on him. Okay, I love to uh, read Medicine Ed. I mean, I'm not a very good reader of old-timey Southern African-American dialect, but you have um, enough imagination, I think, to hear through my voice something of what his voice would sound like. Um, it was um, the, uh, the old-timey black rooms on the racetrack when I was working there. Um, I and my, um, my sister Hillary, who also came to work on the track with me, she's here today, we just used to love these guys um, who knew everything about the track, were very generous about um, sharing their information with us. And we worried about them. The, no provision had been made, really, for their for their old age. Um, they had no medical insurance. Um, they were old then. And um, um, when I came back to talk to old grooms on the racetrack in the 1990s, because I was working on this book, um, I talked to a groom at um, Pimlico named Pockets. I knew, at, w- at one point I knew his last name, but I've forgotten, and I'm ashamed to say. Um, and Pockets even had, like Medicine Ed, a stiff leg from having been run over, over by a horse um, at a certain stage. So they had to literally lie in the straw on the ground under a horse's foot when he was working on that foot. Um, he couldn't squat in any way. Um, and um, therefore, Medicine Ed was the character that I most needed, in a sense. He was the one who... Um, I needed to understand. I wanted the voice to be in the book in some way, and I also, um, not that I can claim to be a reformer or anything of the kind, but one who uh, whose basic situation I thought had the most pathos about it in some way. Um, what's happening in uh, this particular short section that I'm going to read is um, Medicine Ed uh, is bringing a horse to post um, later this day. Um, And he usually doesn't pay much attention to the names of horses, like a lot of grooms. Um, There's a heavy turnover. Uh, Medicine Ed doesn't read all that well anyway, um, so he hasn't really looked in the paper to try to figure out this horse's name. But he's been thinking to himself that morning of how he's looking for a home like the Bull Weevil in the song, like Mr. Bull Weevil. And um, uh, the blacksmith who's holding, uh, uh, I mean, who's working on the horse as he's holding him on the shed row later, says um, something about Mr. Bullweevil, and Medicine Ed says, what you mean, Mr. Bullweevil? And he says, that horse, that horse that you're running tonight. And uh, Medicine Ed is sure he's gotten a message from uh, the powers of the universe that it's time for him to uh, bet his lucky money on this horse. He backs away from the shed row into his... Um, Um, mashed-in trailer, and this scene ensues. 
It was no need for studying and dreaming. Often in the past, if Medicine Ed need to know about a horse, he could sit over a hand made of tail and mane hairs of the horse and tied with a red string and a hoof shaving and one green corner bit of his lucky money, push them around in hot candle sperm with a hoof pick under the light of the same white candle and dream until the answer come to him. But today was no need, no time. Soon as he heard the name of the horse Zeno was running, he knew what he must do. He must ride his lucky money on Mr. Bull Weevil, who had beckoned to him, and somehow he felt he had to touch his lucky money just then. There it is, never mind if it looks strange. He stumbled into the trailer. It was a 50 Zeno give him last year when they stole a nice little race in the Poconos with small-town Doc. He kept it pressed flat and neat between the lid and the waxed cardboard seal of a pickle jar of hedge beech leaf. The bill was evenly folded four times, so Ulysses S. Grant looked up thoughtful at you out of the lower left-hand corner. It was no use wishing it was a hundred or a couple of hundreds. He'd seen better years than them with Zeno and worse years. Thing of it was, he had lucky money. Like the bull weevil, he was looking for a home, and here was Mr. Bull Weevil in the fourth slot in the fourth race, beckoning to him. It was not a harming goofer that Medicine Ed knew the makings of. This ghost gray powder had never been meant to undo a horse. It was a root work of strong encouragement, of reaching deep into the lost harmony and milking up one drop of what was needed at the last. The gray rolled leaf which stuck to itself like cobweb came from a hedge beach in the old Salters family plot hard by New Life Baptist Churchyard in Cambrai, South Carolina. The tree grew sideways out of the grave of his grandfather, Eduardo Salters, greatest jockey ever known in South Carolina, born in slavery, killed in a match race in 1888. It sprung out of the grave dirt, twisted in the shape of a man riding, with one straight limb shooting out of it like a whip, and its leaves must be collected at dark of moon from that limb only. This jar was dried heart leaf, this one was horse mushroom, this here was bone set. The fine gray gold sugar with specks of black peat in it was sand and shatters from the infield of Major Longstreet Park in that little arc of elderberry bush where Cannonball was buried. And finally, he had needed blood of great speed. And what he got must have was good enough. This was the blood of Platonic, who he had rubbed for Whirligig Farm and who gave him his own bleeding ulcer. Platonic had scratched his fetlock in the gate the day he won the seashell. And Ed had scrooched down before he let the horse have his bath and scraped every black flake into this little bottle here. And that once he mixed it to his recipe, was Medicine Ed's horse goover dust. But he had give up doctoring. Come to find out if you asked by powerful means for more than the animal had to give, you could not manage the results. Every time he had cast the powder, the horse had won, but won for the last time. Some way, that was the last race of the horse, at least the last he ever saw. Um, by the way, as many times as he gives up doctoring, he resumes doctoring in this book. So, How many of you, isn't that beautiful? 
just beautiful prose. How many of you all would describe yourselves as horse people? You, you have horses, you raise them, you ride them, you clean up their poop, you do whatever you do with horses. Right? It, there is something about the relationship, Medicine Ed's relationship with all of these horses and the care in which he you know, doctors them and, and just the right ingredients for every salve and every uh, medicine. There's something um, very unique and distinctive about the relationship of human beings to horses, which I think makes it really rife and beautiful for metaphors about relationships between human beings. Was that part of what attracted you uh, to go to the track at the fr- in the first place in, in the 60s and, and to write about it later? Well, let's be frank here. What attracted me to the track was this man. But then... I'm trying to go, I'm trying to go upscale here on you, Jamie. <laughs> but, but the minute I got to the track, you know, my own track record was not to stay, you know, to stay at that particular point in my life three and a half years with any man was something of a record, but uh, it was, but the track, the track, I mean, once I got there and I saw the horses, and also, I mean, it was a combination of two things, I think. First of all, the horses were so beautiful, so interesting, and, uh, and at that age, I don't know whether this would be, would be true anymore. I just walked right in those stalls. I had no fear of horses at all for some crazy reason. Um, but um, the other thing was the language. Uh, I mean, I can remember sitting there at the, on the curb of the shed row in Charlestown writing recipes, I mean, writing headlines for food stories and hearing uh, the blacksmith and my trainer talking. I didn't understand one word they were saying. And that fascinated me because uh, slang has always uh, um, drawn my attention. There's something about it. I mean, I realize that slang is always transitory. It's always ephemeral in some way. But it has a kind of spirit about it uh, that's a, a, a spirit of um, um, insider knowledge, of, um, of irony, um, joking, telling it like it is, um, all of which um, has, has always drawn my attention. Um, and as those of you who've read the book know, I didn't uh, compromise in one bit. I mean, I didn't try to make this slang any less um, a, a, a replete experience when you read the book. It's everywhere. And I think sometimes people find it a bit of a, uh, an obstruction at the beginning. But once they're in the book, they realize they are in that world in some way. Um, now, the other question. Um, the... Tommy and uh, Maggie have a very sexual relationship. Um, I always liked writing about sex, and I think I have a reputation for writing about it fairly unabashedly. But there was something different about the sex in this book, and I wasn't even sure why at first. I mean, I just found myself um, tilting it towards the dark um, and also um, the edged with violence, edged with um, um, coercion, but Maggie cooperate. I mean, Maggie is um, is um, as much a part of this as Tommy. She isn't uh, um, rebelling against it one bit. She is kind of uh, um, hypnotized by it. And I eventually realized it's because um, everything about the racetrack is also based on this subtle 
threat of violence. Uh, I mean, we um, domesticated horses and bred racehorses to be a certain way. They, um, we have made them animals who will run to the point of pain, um, who will embrace suffering in order to do what they do better than other horses. And that's what's so wonderful about it. I mean, it's not our humanitarian impulse that draws us to horse racing. I have to recognize that. I love horse racing for the beauty, and I feel deep um, compassion for the horses, especially horses um, who are towards the end of their careers, like Medicine Ed and Tutai in this book. Um, what's going to be in their future? Uh, we know the answer to that question all too well. But, um, but at the same time, I, uh, I'm, I didn't write this book um, to be an enemy of horse racing. Just the opposite. I love it. I, I, and I loved it even at its cheap end, um, where all these, um, these cruelties are most um, clearly played out, I'd say. Anyway, that's part of the sex in the book, too. And, uh, I, and I wanted it to be both beautiful and a little shocking to people. And I want to be clear that um, for those of you who don't have any particular interest in horse racing, as I don't, I, I don't care one bit about horses, I found this a really fascinating book. So I don't think knowing horses and knowing horse racing is a, by any means a prerequisite for enjoying the book. You said something to me um, the other day when we were talking on the radio that was very surprising to me, and that you said that when you set out to write this book, you set out to write a commercial book. That's the word, the word you use. I found this a highly literary book, highly literary. And I wondered um, what, your, what your expectation is for a, a quote-unquote commercial book uh, and uh, whether maybe you just sort of can't help yourself being highly literary. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I might have expressed myself a li- little wrong if I said uh, that I set out to write a commercial book. I set out to write a racetrack novel which um, has to be a sports book to some extent. You know, I thought, also, um, I, it's my fourth novel, and I, I thought, um, by now I knew how to design a book. And, this, and there are some formal aspects to Lord of Misrule that I'm really proud of now, that it's set, written in four races, and the races interlock, uh, all headed towards this big climactic race. Um, and it... Uh, you know, uh, I, I might have gotten a bad rap that I was um, an experimental writer, which a lot of people take it to mean take to mean there's no plot in the book. I've always written plots. I'm, oh, I really I like n- uh, narrative, um, which fulfills that uh, mission of narrative, having um, traveling through time in a way that um, a reader who's following the book will realize. Um, involves some suspense one way or another. Um, and uh, I, I had every intention of writing a novel with that kind of shape. Um, and I thought, for once, I'm writing a book about a subject that, uh, that there should be some people, uh, enough people who would want to read so it would have a commercial, um, it would have com- commercial possibilities. That's the way I explained it to myself. And I took it to my agent around about 2001 and said, here's a novel that should be that you ought to be able to sell. And um, um, she looked doubtful from the start, showed it for five or six different publishers, 
and um, came back to me and said, I'm sorry, I think you're still a small press author, Jamie, which I could tell was what you wanted to say all along. Um, and I was mad in this case because um, I felt that if she had found the right editors, um, that uh, um, in spite of its having the defect of being beautifully written <laughs> or carefully written. Don't you just hate when books are like that? <laughs> In, in spite of the, the burden that the, that the sentences would require some attention, um, it, there was enough going on in it so that uh, it might actually um, allow some people to keep the dream of the narrative and, um, and leave their time, uh, leave the time that they were living in and enter the time frame of the novel and uh, be happy to be there. Um, when my um, agent... Um, was sure that wasn't the case. And I think that, um, I mean, people, people have said if it was substantially the same book as now, it's unbelievable that uh, she wouldn't have found an editor. But I, I don't think that's, I think it's easy to explain. Um, I think that she mostly worked with, um, she was mostly interested in women's relationship novels where the women are loyal, analytical, um, hang on to what they have, care deeply about their their connections um, to other human beings are kind and good and generous and uh, heroic in the way that only women can be heroic and everything that Maggie isn't, you know, or all those reckless young women I wrote. Um, uh, have a Sounds like Sarah Palin's Alaska, I forgot. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm half joking, but, uh, but I think there are, um, it wasn't a women's relationship book of the conventional sort, let's put it that way. And if she showed it to editors who were looking for that kind of book, they would have been put off by it. Um, I knew that she should have looked for people who wanted a racier sort of book, um, but, um, but nevertheless, I got discouraged and distracted, and you know, rather than try to sell this book, I got really interested in opera and had to learn Italian. These are, this, is, this is my defect. Uh, you know, I, I'm the most distractible person in the world, and I spent the next six years doing everything but try to sell the book. Um, uh, and that's why it came out from a small press. Eventually, my oldest editor, Bruce McPherson, um, came to my rescue um, and conspired with my husband, Peter Blicklet, like, how can we get this woman to finish this book? Um, I must have promised McPherson that he could have it in 2010 if I hadn't sold it anyplace else. And um, he, he um, did the brilliant trick, really, of sending me galley proofs for the book um, in this completely corrupt early version that I, that I had shown him many, many years before. And that finally galvanized me into reading it. The biggest problem for five years, as I said before, was that I couldn't stand to read about that Maggie person. And, uh, and that, then I thought, oh, my God, if he's going to publish the book, I'd better read it uh, so that I can at least um, begin to revise it. And uh, when I read it, it was, it was better than I had remembered. It was, um, and it wasn't so much just about Maggie. Um, I, I even uh, cried a couple of times because I'd forgotten little details of the plot and uh, the plights of various animals and people moved me when I read them again. So then I thought, I've, I, I have something here. 
And uh, okay, we'll publish this book from McPherson and Company, and it will be like dropping it over the, a cliff into oblivion because no one will ever read it now, despite my, my plans for its having reached a larger public than any of my books before. But, um, but Bruce kept saying, I'm telling you, it's going to be a contender for the National Book Award. And after I would pick myself up off the floor from hysterically laughing, um, I would... I, I decided to indulge him since he had never, um, since he had never been vehement about anything before. I mean, he had completely indulged all my procrastinating tendencies for 45 years, and since he was so serious about this, I did it, and thank God I did, and we met the deadline. Well, and I'm so glad you enjoyed the book, Jamie, because I did too. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> And this small press comes, uh, as they say in the horse racing business, out of nowhere and wins the National Book Award. That's fantastic. Now, how has your life changed, or has your life changed, since you did that? Um, Well, of course, you know, um, one of the reasons that um, I liked the book, again, when I looked at it, um, kind of to my surprise, I had forgotten how important Tutai and Medicinette are in the book, and they are two older guys without children, without um, the protection of family, who are, who are in some way deeply disappointed at um, what life has um, handed over to them, um, and they're on the downslope. Uh, when I reread the book, I was identifying completely with them. I mean, I was at the point... I, I think that um, in a lot of ways... I'm so I'm so such a um, uh, an idiosyncratic person. I'm so used to being a, a, an oddball, in other words, that I could write for myself alone um, to a certain extent for years and years and years and years and years. But I was running out of steam in doing that. I was finally disappointed that I hadn't been prolific enough, or worked hard at getting a public enough, or Maybe I wasn't even good enough to have gotten the attention that somewhere in my life I thought I might get. And um, the minute that, I mean, the irony of this happening with a racetrack book that's all about luck and all about people thinking in exactly this way, thinking they were meant for something special and that's why they like to gamble because they keep testing this over and over again. I think I was meant for something special. I'll just put everything I have on this horse right here and see whether I was made for something special. I was. I won. And then they put it all on the next horse. Oh, how could I have thought for a minute I was anything but a failure and a bust and doomed from, the, from my first minute on earth. And since I think this way, um, I, it was perfectly... Um, and the book is suffused with uh, this philosophy um, on the part of many of its characters. It seems so right that it would be this book that finally turns things upside down for me. Although I was somewhat expecting, I, I know this will sound paranoid and, and uh, pathological to the last degree, I even felt for a little while that getting the National Book Award was just setting me up for an even bigger <laughs> disgrace. That... Uh, <laughs> That all the reviews, since the publication book, the publication date of the book was November 15th. The National Book Award was November 17th. There was virtually nothing out there, or only a few things. 
no big review had appeared. Actually, Jane Smiley had written about the book, but um, nobody else. And um, I was sure that, okay, the reviews are going to be so embarrassing that, the, that the, the judges will all leave the country for three months. <laughs> they won't want to talk to the press. Um, or else I wrote this whole, I, you know, in a, in a dream state, I plagiarized this entire book from some other writer. And, and somebody's going to find out that I did that without even knowing it. I did. Something like that is probably going to happen. Uh, and I still every now and then have that fear. But... So deep far, so deep far. breath. You won. It's okay. <laughs> we just have a few minutes, and I apologize for monopolizing the conversation. Any uh, questions from the audience for Jamie Gordon? Yes. Why did you leave the track? Why did you leave the track? Um, well, um, as much as I loved it, um, around about fall of 1970, um, very much in the spirit of making a getaway while I still could. I, um, I had applied for graduate school. You know, you have to think a little bit ahead. And in January, um, during the couple of weeks of the year when those Charlestown and Shenandoah tracks were down, um, I, and uh, my horse trainer, lover, friend, um, tormentor of those days was out of town, I was thinking, this is nuts. I, would, I can't live on the racetrack for the rest of my life in a um, 12, by, 12 by 8 foot trailer. Um, and uh, when am I going to ever write? You know, I, w- I thought I was going to be a writer, and uh, there's certainly no time for writing in this life. And, um, and also, I think I had to admit it. Um, I don't think I would have had the nerve to be a trainer, um, and I really didn't ride well enough to be an exercise girl. Um, so that would have meant spending the rest of my life as a groom. Um, and as much as I... I'm telling you, it was tempting. It was exactly because it was so tempting that it was time to make a getaway. But where did I go to graduate school? I, uh, I had gotten into Iowa and Brown. Why did I go to Brown? Because there was a racetrack 10 miles out of town. And, uh, and I thought, mm, you know, in case it doesn't work out, and uh, on the weekends, if I can't get it out of my system, I'll just go up there. But, um, but fortunately for me, Lincoln Downs closed within a year of my starting graduate school. So I never got tempted. So you were able to finish your degree. That's great. question is, have you had uh, any reaction from people in the horse racing industry? Um, the, I, I was most scared after all those years um, that I might have matters of fact wrong. I mean, I felt that in, I was even writing in some ways a period novel, 1967 to 70. Butazolidin was still um, illegal um, in most places. It was legal in Nebraska, which is actually important in the plot of the book. Um, but um, if I was t- thinking to myself, well, drugs are no longer a problem on the racetrack, um, this is so laughable. You know, one reason that um, racetrack people have responded so much is that they feel, at least um, metaphorically, it's exactly the same track in a lot of ways. Um, I have been so touched at the interest in racetrack people in the book. It's been the biggest surprise and the best surprise. In fact, the very best thing that happened to me when the book was still a finalist was um, I found a message on my answering machine from Andrew Beyer, the um, 
the columnist for the Washington Post who also syndicates to the racing form. Andrew Beyer is a saint to people who follow horse racing. He was the inventor of the Beyer speed figure, um, a statistic that's now in the past performance chart of every horse. He figured out a way to um, bring together all the statistics about speed, um, about horses from every quality of track. He actually um, made it a little harder to gamble with claiming races or, or, um, or horses who've run at different qualities of racetrack by um, um, inventing this formula for bringing together all those statistics and converting them into one figure. Anyway, it's Andy, Andy Byer, and he says, I really liked your book. He says, this is Andy Byer, as if I didn't know who this was. This is Andy Byer from the Washington Post, and I'd like to write a column about your book. Would you mind talking to me for about a half an hour this weekend? And, of course, I was in heaven over this. Um, and um, not only did the column appear in the Washington Post, it appeared in the daily racing form, so every better in America at least ran his or her eyes over it that day. Um, and there was a big surge in sales, which uh, surprised me and everybody. I, I mean, I th really think horse racing people have um, continued to support the book, um, which also keeps having a statistic at Amazon and other places. Like the, I mean, uh, it, for a while it was on the... Um, extended bestseller list of the New York Times and it's been on indie bookstore bestseller list a few times but it stays on the um, best-selling sports book lists uh, something else I didn't see coming like um, you know it's 16th and then 12th 8th 30th and so on for uh, and I love that I mean how wonderful for me and it actually in a, in a sense it fulfills one of my um, one of my wildest dreams for the book. Uh, when I was trying to think of what kind of book am I trying to write here, um, I kept thinking of Leonard Gardner's Fat City. Does anybody know that novel? It's a book about low-end boxing, which is kind of legendary among other writers. Um, it's, um, it's an unrelievedly gritty, grim, realistic book. I, I think uh, Lord of Misrule tries to be funny in some places. I'm not sure Fat City is ever funny, uh, but, it's, but it's riveting. Just a hypnotic book. And it's the best novel we have about American boxing. In fact, I can't even think of another worthwhile novel about American boxing. Um, it's the one that everybody knows, and it's about boxing at its absolute bottom. Um, so I thought, you know, what about a novel about horse racing at its bottom? I don't know that there's another one out there. Maybe I could find a, a niche, and, and my book would last like Leonard Gardner's book, which is the only book of his, um, and I've already explained to you um, indirectly that I'm not a very prolific writer and never will be. So I thought, you know, if I could write one book that would last, that'd be a, that would be a wonderful thing. I would be glad to, to uh, join the the gl glorious company of writers who we know by one book, like Ralph Ellison, for instance, Leonard Gardner, Robert Hughes, who wrote um, uh, High Wind in Jamaica. Believe me, I have to collect these because I look on them as being my future in some way. So I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to be part of that company. Well, we are out of time. Uh, Jamie Gordon, you are a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you all. Take care now.